Welcome to the Grace Under Pressure podcast, an evidence-based podcast for the nurse anesthesia community. What makes Grace Under Pressure different is that it's created by and for CRNAs and SRNAs. I exclusively interview CRNA experts and deliver topics based on your preferences. Thanks for listening. So welcome back to the Grace Under Pressure podcast, a podcast for nurse anesthetists. On this episode, we are going to be discussing office-based anesthesia, and we have a special guest, Nick Blanc. Welcome to the show. Good morning. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, Nick, could you just tell us a little bit about your practice thus far and what you've been doing in terms of office-based anesthesia and otherwise within your career? Sure. Yeah. So, um, Ultra Care Anesthesia Partners is um, a full-service anesthesia management company of which uh, I'm one of the owners. Uh, one of our areas of expertise is office-based anesthesia, um, not just in New Jersey, but also in Pennsylvania and Delaware. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've been doing uh, work in that area since about 2014, um, so a few years now, and uh, I find it very interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has its own unique challenges, I mm-hmm. think, um, you know, unique from, say, the hospital or other, um, you know, practice environments. Uh, but it's a lot of fun uh, if you like to be challenged. So, yeah, I found it I found it very interesting, for sure. Can you just give us an exact definition of what makes something office-based? You know, is it about um, access to equipment? Is it about the um, type of procedures they're doing? Or is it about the type of anesthesia you're giving? Yeah, you got it. It's probably um, a combination of all three of those factors, okay. right? Um, the state of New Jersey, specifically, um, has different regulatory bodies um, for different practice environments. Um, so um, who oversees... The environment is one of the things that makes it office space versus, you know, any other kind of practice environment. And then you have the accrediting bodies, um, you know, where medical practices um, or businesses apply for certain types of accreditation. Um, and uh, often redundancy in safety systems mm-hmm. um, and the patient population acuity, mm-hmm. um, as well as um, the depth or the complexity of the anesthetic all help to define to the accrediting body um, and to the state regulators whether or not this qualifies as an office-based practice or, you know, something more advanced like an ambulatory surgery center, okay. um, you know, or, you know, or a hospital um, for that matter. Right. Um, there is a fair degree of latitude with what procedures can be performed within offices versus what have to go to ASCs and what has to go to hospitals. And uh, now I think more than ever because of the... Um, the cost effectiveness being so scrutinized mm-hmm. uh, in the medical profession and in the surgical profession and in the anesthesia professions uh, that there is quite the push to try and move as much as they can into settings where um, things are a little more cost effective. And so there is this downward pressure on offices to figure out a way, you know, to do more. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, anesthesia is um, you know part and parcel with surgery. And so there's downward pressure on anesthesia providers and anesthesia groups to figure out a way to solve those problems. Um, Typically in an office-based setting, you see patients that um, aren't as complex medically as what you would see in a hospital. Um, and is there a rule about that? Can you not have an ASA3 patient in an office-based anesthesia situation, or is there no official law? Yeah, right, the, the three minuses, we like to call them, right? Uh-huh. So, um, you know, I think from a legal standpoint, you know, you always rate a patient's ASA score at what you believe it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, you, because it's a provider preference, 
um, to a certain extent on whether or not you right. know, how stable that ASA three is, okay, um, or how appropriate that patient is amongst other you know factors in the condition for them to be um, done in an office based setting. But mm-hmm. yeah, and ASAs one through three okay. um, are acceptable in an office based setting. Fours are not acceptable in an office. They're not acceptable in an ambulatory surgery center. Right. Although um, because of that downward pressure, we are seeing um, some larger. Uh, administrative and management companies being okay with what they're calling stable ASA-4s, which to me is an oxymoron, right? (laughs) Yeah, right. It doesn't make any sense, right? But things like certain degrees of end-stage renal disease and certain medical devices for life support like pacemakers um, that practitioners would consider, um, anesthesia practitioners would consider ASA-4 type stuff um, you know, these larger management companies for very minor procedures, colonoscopies, endoscopies, things of this nature, they're saying that it's acceptable okay. to do them, and they're setting up policies and procedures to mitigate the liability mm-hmm. so that um, these patients can be done there. But typically, ASA 1 through 3 is what we see in an office. And I can tell you, traditionally, uh, once you start running up against ASA 3s, mm-hmm. um, they get scrutinized um, to a larger extent. You know, they really have to be pretty clean and clear okay. in order to be done, you know, in an office. Because, again, the, you know, the, the infrastructure, the redundancy of safety systems um, is not what it used to be. Now, I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek because okay. the last year, in June, actually, of last year, um, the legislature signed a bill mm-hmm. uh, that requires um, single-room uh, physicians' offices where surgeries are performed to um, license with the state of New Jersey as ambulatory surgery centers, not just physician offices, right? So there's some run-up going on here where everybody's kind of, you know, figuring out, you know, how much of this they have to do and, you know, what the time frame looks like. And there's legislative overlap um, of these two venues. And so um, ambulatory surgery centers and and offices. And so it's it's a little bit difficult now to kind of figure out how to navigate the landscape. And we're seeing that on the front lines as advanced practice nurses and anesthesia CRNAs um, with respect to job security. And, you know, we can get into that if you want. But right. um, that's, that's you know, just some of the caveats that we enjoy. And just from my own curiosity, what kind of, like, emergency equipment is available in most of these settings? Are there crash carts? Are there, I assume there are not MH carts. Um, are you even using any, like, MH triggering agents? I, I just, sure. tell us a little bit more about the anesthesia I guess no it's great um, you know we always tell so if you follow the ANA's guidelines and standards for office based anesthesia mm-hmm. you know there's a great list on their website that's my little plug for the ANA uh-huh. um, and for the New Jersey Association but there's a great list on there for what types of products and 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 what types of systems um, okay. need to be present in an office in order for it to be you know compliant with our standards of care okay um, and the standards of care are important because uh, that's one of the things that will be thrown in your face if you're ever sued yep. by, quote-unquote, you know, or tried by a jury of your peers. Um, so you typically see all of the same um, standard rescue equipment that you would find um, in any other crash car. There okay. has to be, um, you know, a, a minimum complement of ACLS drugs. Okay. Uh, there has to be a minimum complement of uh, airway instrumentation and the supportive devices. Mm-hmm. Uh, there has to be, uh, you know, suction and um, supplemental oxygen sources mm-hmm. and things of this nature. And you're always balancing that against um, the patient population that you're dealing with. Yeah. You know, if you know you're, you're you know, doing pediatrics and, or if you're doing special needs populations, mm-hmm. you know, you know that there's complexities that exist within, you know, their airway anatomy or, you know, their physiological makeup. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you may um, specify that you want to have a little more of this or a little more of that you know, on hand for certain things. And you may even 
um, be more specific with the types of rescue equipment that you have. Maybe yeah. you prefer certain types of, um, you know, bag valve uh, ventilation mm-hmm. systems or, you know, et cetera. Yeah. Right. Um, since you're not in an ambulatory or hospital setting, are you, are you and your practitioners that you manage any more stringent about their pre, the patient's preoperative assessments? You know, are you maybe holding those sort of criteria to a higher standard because you know you're not going to have access to certain things in the practice setting um, in terms of like do you, you know, on a patient that you may be like, oh, it's okay if we don't have an echocardiogram, are you a little bit more conscientious of that or what do you think? Yeah, it, it's the... Um the magnitude of information mm-hmm. uh, these days that's available to the practitioner mm-hmm. to be able to kind of um, help you read those tea leaves in a pre-op assessment environment um, is so much better now than what it was. You know, big data playing a role here and being able to run data analytics on patient populations, it's all just pouring in now. Yeah. And so you can find great resources, the American College of Cardiologists, um, and the AHA uh, in 2014 released these guidelines for you know the the way that's very algorithmic for how you should proceed in in certain situations when it comes to cardiac care or when it comes to valvulopathies mm-hmm. you know things of this nature um, you have to weigh that against value based care and yeah. what CMS you know would like you to do regarding you know um, treatment of post op nausea vomiting and you know blood pressure screenings and intraoperative temperature um, but there the the relationship between the patient and the provider, I find, is still one of the most important variables in all of this. Mm-hmm. Because patients who typically come in to have a procedure done have resigned themselves psychologically that they're going to have this done today. Mm-hmm. And so there is, uh, there can be, um, in certain patients, uh, a certain degree of, um, you know, obstinance when it comes to, um, you know, being honest with whether or not they did eat or drink in the morning or whether or not their blood pressure is you know, um, you know, falls within certain standards or what have you. Right. And so having that trusting relationship, they really feel like you're on their side and you just want to get them through this. Um, You do kind of walk that line a little bit of of a primary care, Mm -hmm. you know, practitioner where you you really have to develop that relationship, get honest answers from them, and then trying to determine whether or not, you know, it's appropriate. And I tell them all the time, you know, just because it's not appropriate today, Mm -hmm. you know, doesn't mean it's not appropriate. You know, we just have to do the safest thing. Right. You know, and, and, I find that very rewarding. Mm-hmm. Um, I know most of the practitioners that work in office space environments also find that very rewarding. It's yeah. a challenge to build that trust, mm-hmm. um, and and oftentimes you know you you are making recommendations, and you know they're coming in and their blood pressure is one hundred and you know seventy over one hundred and five, and you have to have that conversation with them and with you know the operating practitioner, surgeon, podiatrist, otherwise you know, about whether or not this is a safe thing to do and follow up. And sometimes you're making phone calls yeah. to the patient's cardiologist because they got so worked up on the car ride over that they came in and their heart rates are regular and it looks like a fib on a monitor. And if you don't have access to a 12-lead EKG, how can you really diagnose it, right? And so, you know, you err on the side of caution. And right. You sit there with the patient, you make the phone calls, you make sure they get followed up on. And they're so grateful, you know, for that. And that's a huge value add for advanced practice nurses and anesthesia in the office-based environment. They need the protection of anesthesia providers. And I work with um, maxillofacial surgeons, and uh, you know, I talk to quite a few in all areas of the state that mm-hmm. say all the time, They're, most of them are double-boarded in anesthesia and in maxillofacial surgery, dentistry, et cetera. Yeah. And the patient population has become so much more complex 
yeah. um, because of the opioid epidemic and because of the aging of the population and, you know, comorbidities and whatnot, the complexity of polypharmacy that these people are on when they come to the office. And, you know, the fact, you know, to their point, the fact that somehow some regulator says that it's safer for them to do the anesthesia themselves and do the procedure rather than having an advanced practice nurse in anesthesia there doing the anesthesia while they just focus on the procedure, just it doesn't make any sense. And it's an area that we're addressing as a state association. Yeah. And it's an area that we're addressing as a business. So now that we talked a little bit about the practice side, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the professional side, what it was like to start your own group, and then how you got these practitioners into that office space anesthesia situation. So um, another great question. Uh, Hugely, it was a lot more. Looking back, it was a lot more difficult mm-hmm. um, than I thought it was while we were going through it. Um, but uh, Ultra Care Anesthesia Partners basically started as uh, the summation of a group of very impassioned individuals, um, both uh, CRNAs and anesthesiologists, um, talking about all of the things um, that were not right. Um, you know, ethically from a practice standpoint, financially, with um, the other options for places to work and groups. And, you know, you kind of plot all them, you know, on a diagram and you end up with a sweet little spot in the middle. And, you know, eventually, you know, after talking about it, we figured, well, hey, if we started a group and we focused on that, you know, and just did that, um, then that would probably be a really good place for people to work. Mm -hmm. Um, So we hung the shingle and we opened it up and you know, we started talking to different people and trying to recruit people to come work for us. And we found out that recruitment wasn't all that hard. Um, we found out that people that worked with us um, really enjoyed uh, the work they were doing with us. And we thought, you know, maybe there's there's some proof of concept here. And we actually have something. So we really started kind of going out and trying to maximize those relationships and personal relationships um, with surgeons, um, with operating practitioners, um, offices, you know, some full-scale marketing stuff, um, nothing too huge. Um, but they just enough to kind of get a critical mass effect and get the name out there. Uh, and then the returns started coming in. We started getting phone calls back from people who wanted to engage us for different services. And in the beginning, like anything else, um, you know, they really just need providers and they don't necessarily understand uh, the value proposition of our company different from another company. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as, you know, you start to grow roots in the landscape, uh, they get a better feeling for uh, what you are and what you're about and the flavor of your particular company versus another company. Um, but by and large, you, you treat people well, you treat your providers well, um, at least the best you can given the circumstances that you have, right? And you stay in communication with them enough and have enough conversations with them that they understand the position that you're in as a company and where you are, uh, and they and they tend to stick it out if the times are rough, uh, and they tend to talk it up when the times are good. And, you know, that type of word-of-mouth connection um, is invaluable. Honestly, it's more, uh, it has a greater return on investment than social media uh, campaigns or, you know, Twitter blasts uh, or, or anything of that sort. You know, they talk about it now in terms of search engine optimization when you're talking about marketing and it's, you know, you could have a bunch of stuff and all kind of chatter, you know, but it's the interactive stuff. It's, it's the leads, not just that it actually gets to your target audience, but when the audience actually clicks on the material and starts to engage in what you're sending, that's, you know, really where the value is. Um, and I, we believe anyway that it's the same thing, um, you know, when you're talking about relations with your employees or with your contractors or with your clients. You know, you want the ones to really understand, not just to hear about you or know about you, but to really understand what you're all about. Um, 
And, and how many um, employees do you currently have? What year did you start? And then where all where all are you practicing? Oh, so we hung the shingle in 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, started fairly locally, uh, Pennsylvania, right there on the border of PA and Delaware. Mm-hmm. Um, we expanded to Jersey, PA, and Delaware. I want to say in 2016. Um, that's about where we are now. We're entertaining clients in New York and Maryland, um, Virginia, um, some other national stuff. We've done a lot of consulting work too for. Um, for practice groups and mm-hmm. for um, health consulting groups that really didn't understand anesthesia, which is another interesting thing. There's a niche there um, to work with where a lot of a lot of companies, healthcare companies, let alone institutions, don't really understand anesthesia practice models or how to make them work or how to make them more efficient. Mm. So if you can really master that knowledge, um, you know you can usually find a good group of, of a good audience that's willing to listen at least to what you have to say. Um, so roughly, I want to say about 28 CRNAs were onboarding people all the time, um, and they all have varying degrees of, of availability. So about 28 CRNAs, I'll say, comfortably, um, and 9 to 11 anesthesiologists, awesome. all functioning in various capacities with varying degrees of availability, all with varying interests, um, you know, in healthcare and in business and you know, all bringing, you know, various relationships, you know, to the table. So we're very and proud of the work did you pick those certain states based on profitability and, like, legislation in terms of expansion? Are there other states that you stay away from because of the lack of that opportunity? I mean, is that part of your decision-making process when you're managing a group? Um, yes and no. Uh, from a corporate standpoint, there's definitely a sweet spot mm-hmm. in the margin that you're operating on, and um, arrangements are kind of coming in all the time, and mm-hmm. you're entertaining responses for proposals all the time and um, sometimes the fit uh, is more important than you know the juice at the end of the squeeze and so you know you kind of figure out where your sweet spot is your operating sweet spot and you really fight to kind of stay there and you know you get to a point where you want to expand it or you want to do different things with it Um, and you make those decisions as they come Um, yeah I'm, I'm personally impassioned about healthcare in the state of New Jersey mm-hmm. and its residents and, you know, the efficiencies or lack of efficiencies in different aspects of healthcare in Jersey. Yeah. And so uh, I will always, it's a good thing um, that I'm not the uh, chief cook and bottle washer of my company and that there are other opinions uh, because I would always be biased towards um, services in Jersey, mm-hmm. um, probably, you know, to the detriment of the operating margin. Yes. <laughs> so they keep me balanced for sure. The board That's does. Good. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, what were some unexpected barriers when you were kind of starting? Oof. Um, I think it was, I think it was Becker. No, it was the Healthcare Financial Management Association uh, released a white paper on healthcare trends in 2019. And one of the things that it identified, and I apologize if that's not the source, but I'm mm. pretty sure it is. Um, one of the trends that it identified was the retention of talent and how that is going to be an increasing factor. Um, and an increasing obstacle uh, in the years ahead. And I can't agree more, man. It, it is very, very tough. Uh, there's ab- an absolute shortage of anesthesia providers. We all know that. Um, you know, it, it's keeping us well compensated and um, comfortable uh, in our jobs, but it's difficult. I mean, to really get people to uh, buy into what you're doing mm-hmm. and who you're doing it with and the longevity of, of a future with you or, or the likelihood of a future with you long term uh, is a difficult thing to sell. And, uh, you know, we would have thought that, you know, if we just put another option out there that wasn't, you know, some, you know, massive conglomerate where people were another ant in the hill, that they would just, you know, kind of flock in. And it, it's just not, that's not the case at all. I think yeah. that was a little myopic uh, on our part 
Um, but, you know, we worked it out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, anything else special you're doing to retain your employees, or is there, like, an overwhelming trend for why people leave? Are they moving to other areas for different practice opportunities? Um, is it their work environment? Is it their coworkers? I just wonder. It's, it's an interesting problem because, you know, what we're seeing, and I think it's on par with national trends, um, more and more uh, people, they want to be a part of something uh, bigger than themselves, which mm-hmm. is unique coming off of like the economics of the late 80s and the 90s where, you know, people were, seemed to be living well and were happy, you know, in their bubble. Um, you know, now I think there's a bit of, a, of, a, of an understanding of the reality financially within the country and economically, and, you know, people get comfortable. Uh, and once they're comfortable, they really want to understand or at least they seem to seek, um, you know, for a deeper purpose of what's behind, you know, the time that they're taking away from their family. And, um, you know, are we doing something special that other companies aren't doing? I mean, it's hard to say. I don't spend a lot of time in their C-suite understanding, you know, I'm not privy to what they're doing or why. More importantly, uh, they're doing what they're doing. But I think we do a really good job of getting people to understand um, not necessarily just with our company, but with their profession in general. Yeah. That there's a there's a bigger there's a bigger um, play here. Yeah. Um, and and it's it's not just about you know a professional play. You know it's about it's about healthcare. You mm-hmm. know writ large. And do you? We have a lot of SRNA listeners. Um, do you have any advice to them as new graduates? Uh, what type of, of job opportunities they should be looking for? What kinds of red flags? I know that's a big topic, but if you just had to share a couple of pearls of wisdom. No, yeah, and again, I think it's a great question. Uh, you you tend to, and this isn't mine. I pirated it, but I'm going to say it again because <laughs> I think it's very important. Um, it, it's you tend to have an opportunity to secure three things. I think. Uh, when you graduate, and unfortunately, um, you can only have two of the three, and one of them is lifestyle, mm-hmm. and another one is experience, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, another one is money, and so uh, somewhere in that tripod of uh, you know of of, of professional um, attributes, when you graduate, you got to figure out which two out of the three. Yeah, and if you are convinced. Um, or should I say, if you have convinced yourself that you are securing an opportunity where you have all three, mm-hmm. um, you're probably not spending enough time distilling the facts. <laughs> <laughs> so figure out which two out of the three are the most important for you coming out, um, that are the most important for your family, um, and that you think are the most important for your future, and, and pick whatever those, whichever opportunity has two out of the three. Great advice. Sure. Um, and any, keep an eye on ultra care anesthesia. Plans. Yeah, that's right. Uh-huh. Any other, Please. anything else you want to share or? Discuss? No, I, I, I wish all of you as students, um, you know, here at Rutgers and elsewhere, um, good luck. I, I really do believe that it is, as I said to you when we were walking into the room coming in, um, you know, off record, it's the best decision you've ever made in your life, and uh, you'll understand that. Come to understand it shortly after you graduate, um, and you owe it to your families. Take care of them. Um, for the support that they've given you because you're not yourself when you're in anesthesia school. and You get back to that very quickly when you're done, but a newer, better version of you, which is really cool to get to know, right? Yeah. A better financed version of you, um, <laughs> typically. But, yeah, I wish you all the luck in the world. You made awesome. a great choice. Awesome. Thank yeah. you. Thank you for our listeners for tuning back into Grace Under Pressure. You can always access these episodes at my website, www.graceunderpressurepodcast.com, and tune in next week. Also, subscribe. Thanks again.